0: we'll continue from this morning the um, hindrances which beset us and their antidotes in the meditation factors when the pleasant feeling the very exquisite feeling arises. Simultaneously, there's joy. It's impossible not to be joyful when one feels extremely good. But because the um, physical, the sensation is stronger, in the first instance, one is actually more aware of that rapturous sensation. The uh, joy is underlying and on the sec- in the second step of this um, meditative absorption we put more attention on the joy. However, at this point The joy which is present then in Pali Sukha as uh, opposed to Dukkha has a very strong effect on one of our hindrances, namely on restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry are within us because we haven't got what we want. The restlessness which arises in the mind is due to the fact that we're still searching and most of the time don't even know exactly where to look. And of course the worry is about the future because the present isn't totally satisfying either. So we are beset by those two because we are not totally fulfilled. The Buddha compared them to being a slave. When restlessness and worry push us around, we are their slaves and... We have no say ourselves, we would like to get rid of them, they're not pleasant, but if we haven't learned how, we cannot become master of the mind. Now in this meditative factor of joy, we have exactly what we've been looking for we've been wanting joy, happiness and therefore during the time of the meditation the restlessness and the worry of course disappear there's nothing to worry about there's nothing to be restless about we are not looking for anything, we have what we want since The first arising of the pleasant physical feeling is now understood to be far more gross than the emotional joy. One is able to let go of that physical sensation and put the main attention on the joy. The physical sensation remains in the background. So the second step is actually having the joy as the main meditation subject. Now this has very great impact on our perspective that we have towards the world. Because this joy has arisen, independent of outside factors, strictly depend only on concentration, we can infer and do, infer from that, that the world as it is, while sometimes being pleasant, and agreeable to us cannot provide what we've actually been looking for. We've been looking for a state of being which is joyful and peaceful, either knowingly or subconsciously. We have certainly always known that things could be a little better than they are. And we've always thought that the outside factors that surround us need to be changed in a certain way so that we then have inside of us what we are looking for. If we have shifted our outside factors around often enough, moved from here to there often enough, changed the relationships often enough, if we have changed our diets and our um, spiritual path often enough, if we've done that so often that it has finally dawned on us, it can't be that, then we are quite able to accept the fact that there's something entirely different to be found. And that acceptance facilitates the meditation because it helps us to recognize that thinking can't be it. We've done that long enough. We've done it for decades, all of us, and it hasn't provided what we wanted. So when we have that quite clearly in mind, it does help to let go of the disturbances in the meditation and take those steps which are strictly due to concentration. So when we have that inner joy, we know that we have something which is entirely different from what we have experienced so far in the world. We have experienced pleasure. We have experienced happiness. But it was of a different quality. This has an entirely different feel about it. It feels sweet. And it feels all-pervading. And it has primarily the aspect of being independent. And that... Independence from outer conditions brings self-confidence. This this second step, which is the second meditative absorption, brings enormous self-confidence because we now know what the mango really tastes like. Nobody can argue with us. They try, but it's useless because we've bitten into it and although people do argue about this even those that argue have an underlying feeling that there may be something in this only the one who has done it knows what's in it Now, having experienced this, even for a moment, makes meditation a must, because one realizes this is where one wants to go, not just because it is pleasant, but because it changes the whole perspective that one has to the world. The world is no longer so tempting. Now this does not mean that we cannot enjoy the pleasant sense contacts, but it means something far more important. It means we're not going to run after them. We're not going to search for them. When they're there, they are pleasant. And when they're not there, it doesn't make any difference. And that is the first step towards equanimity, which is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the crown jewel of all emotional states. Knowing that we have that joy within us changes our connection in daily living, because we know we can get back to it. So if there is unpleasantness in daily life, it's not considered to be a great tragedy. It just is. Like everything else, just is. So is that too. Because we know we've got that, what we really want within us. We don't have to get it from someone or from something. And because we don't have to get it from someone or something, if we do get something, which is pleasant, we can enjoy it in purity. We didn't expect and therefore didn't look for it. And we don't want to hang on to it and we don't want to repeat it. So we don't have the craving and clinging, and we don't have the future in mind. We just have that one single moment in mind, which may be very enjoyable. So we not only gain our inner joy, we also gain the purity of the outer joy. But the main thing is that we no longer search all over the place, forgetting it we spend an awful lot of energy and time and money if we have it for trying to get pleasant sense contacts seeing hearing, tasting, touching smelling and also thinking we're looking for it here and there and sometimes we're successful and other times we're not But every time we are successful, we like to keep it. And because we can't, nothing can be kept. We've got to renew it. And since we have to renew it, we have to expend energy towards renewing the pleasant sense contact. And this energy then gets us into a rot because we get it we lose it, we renew it. We get it, we lose it, we renew it. <clears throat> if we look at our daily living for just a moment, we can see that very clearly happening from morning to night and again and again and again. The energy which we expend, ex- extend towards trying to get those pleasant sense contacts is much better spent on concentration. Because the concentration is not only going to bring us joy. These are only the first steps. It will eventually bring us the depth of insight, seeing absolute reality. And with that, all problems are finally solved. So if we have mental energy and all of us do and we spend that on concentration and we do get to these different levels of awareness which are really only the first two steps we are aware of the fact that there's something else to be found in the universe other than what? We can see or hear, taste, touch, or smell, or think. We have finally got got into contact with a level of consciousness which has nothing to do with our senses. Until then, without even thinking about it, we have always con- believed that their senses are all there is to it and yet our senses are so unsatisfactory we can't even look around the corner we can't see beyond the horizon we can't see ultraviolet light which the bees can see which are not as developed as we are we can't hear sounds which dogs can hear. Our senses are just barely sufficient to keep us alive. And as we grow older, they become less and less efficient. And if this was all there was to life, it would be a great pity. Because if we rely just on what we can take in through the senses we are constantly relying on our environment may it be things nature or people and this reliance on environment is constantly fraught with disappointment it will never live up to our expectations just as we ourselves cannot live up to the expectation of others. We cannot provide inner joy for someone else. We've got to provide it ourselves. And because it is within us, it's absurd to expect that it can come to us through the outside. We think maybe, without even being clear about it, that there must be a hole here somewhere where we can stick it in. It's impossible. It's got to arise within. That's where we feel it. It's quite logical, isn't it? But who in the world tries to do it? Very few people. Restlessness and worry are effectively remedied during the meditation, naturally, but not only during, but also as a residual effect because we know we can get back to what we had in another meditation. From a practical standpoint, it's very important that if we get to any of those levels of meditation, that we recognize not only their impermanence, but also recollect exactly how we got there, so that we get the pathway clear, how to get there, how to go there. When the mind knows it can get there at any time, it feels contented. And contentment, we can say, is synonymous with peacefulness. Our lack of peacefulness is constantly fed by our discontent. There ought to be something, somewhere, that's going to do it for me, but I can't find it. Well, there isn't anything anywhere that will do it for me, other than concentration. That will do it. Restlessness and worry are also connected with hate. When we're full of love, we're neither restless nor worry so they are connected with hating whatever is happening at this moment because then we worry the mind gets to worrying about the next moment restlessness is of course occasioned also by the lack of contentment if we have Being able to cut down this particular weed during meditation and continue to do that. It will also help us to live in the moment. Restlessness and worry are both connected with past and future. Never with this one moment. There's nothing in this particular moment to be restless about if we pay attention to it but if we don't pay attention to it then of course there is so this brings us possibly for the first time solidly into the present moment and can keep us there because we now know what to do so that we can be there The fifth one of these five factors of meditation which arise through concentration is one pointedness, Eka in Pali. And that counteracts the first hindrance, the desire for sensual gratification. Now it counteracts that because when we're one pointed which we have to be in order to be concentrated the mind has to stay in one point there's no desire and that's why I mentioned already once that in the description of the meditative path the first sentence is always secluded from sensual desire because without one pointedness there's no proper meditation. Central desire has been described by the Buddha as being in debt. Now if we owe let's say a mortgage to the bank we have to go each month and pay it with interest. And if we're lucky enough will pay it off in this lifetime. Now, the debt to our senses, unless we recognize it and stop paying, will never pay it off. It will remain with us, even on our deathbed. The debt is that what I've already described, that we have to renew over and over. And if we renew the same sensual gratification over and over, we're going to have to pay interest because in its old form, it will no longer satisfy. It will have to be increased, the pleasure, which is particularly noticeable with addictions. So being a debtor To our own senses is not very wise is it but most people don't even know about it most people never give it a second thought they think that's the way they can find happiness and peace and we do try again and again to do it a little more cleverly than the time before. Cleverness has nothing to do with it. Meditation is an act of letting go. That's the important aspect. It's a letting go of wanting something and coming back to just being the difficulty to concentrate comes from the fact that we want something we want to be concentrated we want to be a good meditator we want to maybe get that pleasant feeling we've heard about And no way to meditate like that As long as we want something, we have Dukkha. The first and second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching says that there is Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and that it has only one cause, which is the second noble truth. And this one cause is craving, wanting. Wanting to have or wanting to get rid of. Instead of just being there. So if the meditation is to be successful, concentrated, we must let go of all these ideas and just let the mind relax into the breath. Let it fall into the breath. Let it be. Not wanting to be concentrated, not wanting. To be a good meditator. But just. Being there. Awake. And aware. Alert. In the moment. That's all. So it's a real act. Of letting go. Of thinking. Of hoping. Of planning. Of remembering. Of wishing. It's letting go of all that. And experiencing in this case, breathing. Experiencing just that one thing, breathing. And then, when we have experienced that, for a little while, we can experience concentration. Which means that we will experience different levels of consciousness, where we actually get in touch with our own inner life or inner being which is always there, always available. The only problem is that we can't get in touch with it because we're thinking. Now, in our society, thinking is highly priced. In fact, it's often well paid. And in some aspects, that's valid. But for inner joy and inner peace, no connection to thinking none whatsoever if there were any connections to be found all university professors should be totally happy totally joyful but they're not so we have this chance and we have this ability And the interesting aspect of it is, and also the fortunate aspect is, that every mind, which we call normal, which the Buddha said wasn't, but anyway we call it normal, is able to do this. There's nobody exempt. And the other fortunate part is that every mind goes along the same pathway. That is what minds do. If that weren't so, it would be impossible to teach meditation. If every single mind would do their own trip, how would anybody know what to teach? But since all minds are part of universal consciousness, in other words, all in one, all minds do the same and can do the same. As I've said before and will repeat, the matter of perseverance, patience and determination. And these are qualities which we have. We may not have been aware of the fact how important they are these qualities. We do persevere with many many things, with our jobs, with our responsibilities. We do have patience. When things don't work out immediately, we don't start screaming right away. We do have patience to wait. And we do have willpower. Otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. Determination and willpower are the same thing. So that determination to keep on doing and to let go. Probably the most important aspect of this practice. The Buddha compared the little pond for sensual desire with one where many different colors had been thrown into. And now it was so colourful that one couldn't see one's likeness anymore. This is what happens in the world. It's very colourful. It's full of temptation. It may not be material goods, but there are so many other temptations, things one can do, things one can learn things one can see going to different countries looking at beautiful temples there's so many things in Pali that's called Papancha I think the word itself already tells the story proliferation so much, no end we can't do it all, we can't see it all, we can't know it all. So we might as well stop right here and now and go in a different direction inside instead of out. The temptations of the world are this color, these different colors that are being thrown into the little pond. It's like fool's gold. It glitters. But once we pick it up and take it to the assail, he says, it's worth nothing. It just glitters. It all has a certain shine to it. And it's all right to enjoy that, the glitter. Nothing wrong with looking at the night sky and if there are stars, to enjoy the stars. Nobody wants to keep them. Nobody wants to own them. And nobody wants to repeat the looking. They're going to come again tomorrow. It's perfectly all right to see that and enjoy it. But the minute we want to keep and to hold, and to own, and to repeat. That's when the trouble starts. So the glitter around us makes life a little more pleasant. And that's as it should be. Because if that weren't so, our dukkha might overwhelm us. And it does it. With some people but we should always keep it in perspective it cannot keep us happy joyful positive wholesome peaceful all the time that we can only do if we get our inner being in order With the sensual desires which we have, we will find that if we look at them a little more closely, that they are supported by society. Now, ill will is not. Ill will is definitely a no-no. It's not nice to get angry. But to have sensual desires, to own a bigger house, To own more cars, to have pretty things, to enjoy one's outings, to enjoy music, to enjoy the theatre—it's all perfectly all right. There's nothing wrong with it. On the contrary, the more one has of it, the more successful one is supposed to be, and because. this desire for sensual gratification promises something good nobody who hasn't really analyzed it recognizes its danger the going outward and always depending upon that what is outside for one's happiness it certainly doesn't mean that one can't ever see a theatre again but the dependency is gone the searching for it is gone and eventually the interest is gone it's not necessary the whole world is a stage and we're the players on it you all know the quotation. We don't need to go to the theater, we've got the theater all around us. And we all believe that the role we're playing is for real. That's why we get upset and angry and anxious and restless and worried because we think this role and the costume we've put on That's it. There's nothing else. All the great writers and philosophers have talked about it. The Buddha has shown us a way how to break through that illusion. It's only possible with the meditation. Now, when we do it through the meditation, we have the automatic antidote. In daily living, when sensual desires overwhelm us, when they become passion, the Buddha has advocated analysis. Taking things apart. Let's say we would be completely enamored of a little red sports car, which we're seeing in a window, show window somewhere, costs a fortune. We can't afford it, but we can't take our eyes off it. And we're lamenting and grieving over the fact that we can't afford it. We're actually considering going into debt for it. Instead of staring at this beautiful little red sports car, in all its glitter and glory. Take it apart into its bolts and screws, its left uh, back wheel, its pedals, its upholstery, in all the bits and pieces that you can think of or can see nobody goes passionately passionately in debt over a back wheel it's just an ordinary technological item which doesn't even look appealing only when the thing is in all its togetherness it looks so wonderful the same goes for people. If we have passionate desire or passionate resistance towards a person, mm-hmm. we can, for instance, look at their left ear and wonder whether that is really worthwhile being passionately desiring or passionately resisting. The Buddha explained a person with a simile of a cart. He said, when we have four wheels and the uh, floorboards and a brake and the, um, the side, uh, the wood for the sides, We don't think that that's a cart. We just see the wheels and we see the floorboards and we see the brake. But when it's all put together, then we call it a cart. It's the same with a person. We have what he called 32 parts of the body. Hair, nails, teeth, skin, and so on. And we'll talk about that a little more in detail as an inside meditation method and all these bits and pieces when put together in their proper arrangement are called me and you. But in reality, they are nothing but energy particles. And yet we take take it as so important as the last thing that exists in the world, the most important thing. Me, and then, of course, possibly someone else. So if we look at things which are arousing our passion, whether it is for wanting or not wanting, we can take it apart into its components, and see whether the components themselves are so attractive or so unattractive. In this case, more the attractive side. Sensual desire has mostly a great deal to do with our problems. Because anger we recognize. We know it's useless. We know it's no good. We know we want to get rid of it. We know we'd like to change it. Everybody tells us so. We believe it. But greed for sensual gratification, wanting something or someone, we don't even recognize that that's to our detriment. We think, must be all right. I'm feeling it, so it must be okay. And therefore, it's much more difficult to even recognize, come to terms, and then do something about it. There's a very famous monk in Northeast Thailand, Tanachan Mahabur, and he had quite a number of Western disciples. And he used to say that he would like all his monks to be of the hate kind, because they would definitely practice. If they were more of the greed character, they mightn't practice at all. They might just enjoy the forest. Now he could do that because he wasn't bothered by hate characters around him. We wouldn't say that we'd much rather have greed characters around us. They are much more pleasant to live with. They are much easier to get along with. They seem kind of easygoing because they are constantly in the hope of getting their wishes fulfilled. And sometimes they do. Now, one mustn't think now that a greed character doesn't have any hate or that a hate character doesn't have any greed. There are two sides of the same coin. However, each person belongs to one of the categories because of having more of the one or the other. That's all. We all have both. They're based on our ego delusion. So the gratification of sensual desire is much harder to see as a menace and much more difficult to get rid of. Although the people who have it are much more pleasant, and also their lives are easier. So we see that we have pro and con on both sides. The hate people are difficult to live with, their lives are usually quite problematical, but at least it's easier to get rid of, because it's so unpleasant. The one-pointedness, which is absolutely essential for any meditation, stops sensual desire no matter how far we get in our meditation. Even if we are only one-pointed for a short period of time, it means just watching the breath for a short period of time, at that time there is no sensual desire. When the sensual desire rises again, the one-pointedness is gone. When, for instance, the mind says, I'm not comfortable, I'd like to sit more comfortably, Um, I'm hungry, I'm too cold, I'm too hot, I don't like meditation, whatever it may be what the mind says, at that time, all the one-pointedness is gone, all the concentration is gone. We can't force the mind to be one-pointed. It's impossible. (laughs) But we can induce it to be, and quite a bit of that can be due to our understanding. we, through the usual channels which we have used up to now, we have not found what we were looking for in life. And if we understand that in our mind, so that means that there is some insight. It is easier to become calm. So we don't force the mind to do this or that, because it won't, it won't obey. But we try to see, insightful, what it is that's stopping us from having concentration, peace, and inner joy. And when we see that, that it is only the old pattern, over and over again, which has never brought with it that which it should have, then we are more likely to be able to let go. The constant letting go process, over and over. Now this letting go process and meditation needs to be repeated in daily life because if we don't do that in daily life, the mind is not used to it and will not do it in meditation. The letting go of the wanting the letting go of the resisting, just accepting as it is, and going along with it. Now, that doesn't mean that we become a sort of foot-wiping cloth for other people, but it means that we do not have inner anger, about the things that don't work out the way we want them to. We let go. If we can make them work out, that's fine. If we can't, that's fine too. It's the inner anger or the inner passion which makes the mind so churned up that it won't be able to meditate. The more we protect our mind in daily living, the easier it is to meditate. The protection for our own mind. Every time there is something that we really want or not want, we can inquire how important it is in the universal scheme of things. If we let our individuality go a little and rest more in universality, take that more into account, then it's much easier to see what is important and what isn't. Obviously some things are, but most aren't. Nothing is important enough to get upset about. Nothing at all. But we need to know that from our own experience so that we can let go for the meditation. Five hindrances, in their usual order, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, skeptical doubt, all having one and the same antidote besides their special ones, noble friends and noble conversation. Each one having its special antidote in the five meditative factors when the mind becomes concentrated. Initial application, continued application, rapture, joy, one-pointedness. The meditative path becomes finer and finer, more and more subtle as we let go of the previous experience to get to the next one. The first one being physical is let go of in order to get to the emotional. From a practical standpoint, there's one more thing To be said, when the concentration has become good enough to enter into this mansion with eight chambers, the first indication is that the breath becomes very fine or even impossible to find. Don't take a deep breath at that time go to the sensation. We do not stop breathing unless we're dying. We breathe, but we breathe according to our mind state. There are mind states where a person alive breathes so little that it appears to be death. But that does not happen, I can assure you, in the first meditative absorption. But the breath does become so fine that we can't attend to it, so we don't look for it. We go to the sensation. And we accept that sensation as our meditation subject. And if we can stay on it for some time, the mind automatically knows that we can let go of it and attend to the emotional state. These are the first two steps. And when we come to the second one, where we attend to the joy without paying much attention to the physical rapture, the first two, initial application and continued application to the meditation subject are no longer necessary. So we are left with three. One-pointedness, joy, and pleasant physical feeling of which joy is the meditation subject. As we progress, more and more of those factors are let go of until we are only left with one pointedness. It's a pathway which the Buddha himself took and which provides us with a great deal of insight on the way but it does not uproot all our underlying tendencies. As we go along this pathway, we will find that we change. We will notice our own changes. When we look back about a year or two, we will see that we're different. And then we know it's working fine. Meditation, which is regular and also has some concentration in it, must change one. If it doesn't, something went wrong. All right, that's enough for this evening. If you have any questions, you can ask them now. Uh, Could you just explain a little bit more about... uh, very, very fine. You said leave the breath as an object of meditation and remove to the sensations. <coughs> uh could you explain that? I mean, is it all the whole the whole body? And any sensations that you find in the body? It's not any sensations. When the breath becomes so fine, the sensation in the body is very markedly different from the sensations which we usually have. And it is usually most of the body, but we don't pay attention to the body, we just pay attention to the sensation. And it is uh, quite clearly so different from our usual feeling that we know that's it. There's no question whether it's pleasant or neutral or whatever. I mean, it just quite different from the usual sensation. It's uh, difficult to explain because of the fact, I said that already, that we're using the same words that are used for our everyday language and everyday activities. The word sensation doesn't uh, describe anything, but the word rapture does. But the word rapture puts a great expectation on it, and I don't like to use it because it denotes something so great, so something in the middle between sensation and rapture. Very pleasant feeling, extremely pleasant feeling. Maybe that's descriptive. Anything else? Yes. I can see that from what you're saying about the that that over time the five factors of absorption would act as antidotes to hindrances but in the meantime until we're sort of experiencing them a lot then we tend to experience the hindrances a lot and I guess I'm wondering whether you feel we should when a hindrance comes up in meditation whether we should be really trying to apply specific antidotes to that hindrance or whether it's better just to keep coming back to the breath just to kind of label it and keep coming back to the breath in the meditation you just label it and if you can label it with one of the five hindrances that's very good um, it's not uh, very often it's not possible you just label mm-hmm. it as you know nonsense or unpleasant or later or something like that but if you can label it as one of the five hindrances that's fine And um, back to the breath, yes. But in daily living, we should definitely operate on a um, training course of trying to use all possible antidotes for the hindrances so that again and again we're cutting them down. So every time we experience anger or irritation or dislike, we should try and substitute. And every time we experience restlessness and worry, we should understand that that is nothing but hate and anger, that it's just disliking what we have, try to substitute with being contented. I expressed it today to somebody with a little saying which Mm -hmm. I read somewhere, wasn't my own invention, that we shouldn't blame the rose bush for having thorns, we should praise the thorn bush for having roses. Mm -hmm. So every time we experience our negativities, we can substitute with that which we know to be positive. That is our training in daily life. But in the meditation, no. In the meditation, just labeling and back to the breath. Staying with you for a long period. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, then you can try and apply some uh, stronger measures rather than just putting the mind back on the breath then you can work with it a little more strongly and see whether you can, if it's anger, for instance, whether you can substitute compassion or something like that. If, it, if, it, if it's recurring, anything that's recurring and sticks around needs to be dealt with. Things which just come up just need to be labeled, but recurring needs to be dealt with. And sometimes it needs to be dealt with by questioning it. Why? Why? Why is this? And then questioning the answer. That can also be helpful. It's very often that these hindrances help one to get in insight into oneself. Because in daily living, we don't have so much time to look at all this stuff. So it can be very helpful. Anything else? All quite clear. We just have to do it. Wonderful. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your heart and see whether there are any troubles in it, any worry, dislike, rejection, resistance, pride, anxiety, fear. anger, anything at all that feels heavy, unpleasant, and then let that all float away like black clouds in the sky being pushed away by the wind. Now look into your heart again and see the wide open space pure and clean and fill it with love and compassion so that the heart is filled with these to overflowing. Direct them towards yourself. Love for yourself as a being and compassion for the difficulties that any human being experiences. Fill yourself, surround yourself with love and compassion. now direct your attention to the person nearest you in this room, and out of the purity of your heart, fill him or her with your love and compassion. Love for a fellow human being, compassion for the difficulties that all human beings have. Fill that person from head to toe and surround him or her with your love and compassion. Now let your love and compassion flow out of your heart to everyone here. <clears throat> Loving each person as a fellow human being, joined in the same endeavor, compassion for each person's difficulties fill each one embrace each one with the purity and warmth from your heart Think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Love them for what they are. Have compassion for their difficulties. Fill them and embrace them with your love and compassion. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Those you might live with. Love them for what they are. Have compassion with their difficulties. Let your heart in purity flow out to them. Filling them and embracing them with your love. Think of all your good friends, love them for what they are, let the heart open, give them the gift of your love and compassion. Now think of your neighbors, colleagues at work, people you meet here and there, acquaintances. And let your heart speak to them. Embrace them with love, as fellow human beings. On this planet at the same time as we are and compassion for the dukkha that each human being has think of any one person who might be giving you special troubles do not allow the heart to contain any impurity any dislike any rejection fill it once more completely with love and then reach out with that love also to that person. Not because he or she is lovable but only because your heart is full of it. And now open your heart as wide as you can and let love and compassion flow from it. To people near and far, those present in this house, and surrounding this house, in the village, and further field to the town to your own hometown to as many people as you can envision like a stream or a flood of love and compassion pouring from your heart beings near and far Put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy that comes from loving and giving unconditionally. From not wanting. Fill yourself with that joy. Surround yourself with it. recognizing its source a heart that loves and gives male beings have love and compassion in their hearts